KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. COVID cases are surging, so what's ahead? In the next two to four weeks, we are going to be dealing with more cases of COVID. No questions about that. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Governor Newsom gives the okay to citizens' lawsuits against illegal guns, but... There are other legal issues that could be the demise of these laws. And monkeypox cases are on the rise, but getting a diagnosis can be difficult. And now that Comic-Con is over, what's in a portfolio review? That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The results of wastewater testing are showing a dramatic increase in the presence of the COVID-19 virus in San Diego County. It's an early indication that the infection rate is rising quickly. Here's Dr. William Singh, Assistant Chief of Staff for Kaiser San Diego. What that tells us is that in the next two to four weeks, we are going to be dealing with more cases of COVID. No questions about that. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman joins me now to talk about what could be coming. And Matt, welcome back. Hey, Jade. Great to be here. What does the data from San Diego County Wastewater Treatment Plant show? The data shows a sharp incline uh, with the most recent amount of COVID that they're finding in San Diego sewage. We we know that infections first develop in the gut, and that's why we see uh, this in the wastewater. And if you look at the the graph, I mean, you know, last summer surge, we've we've already eclipsed, you know, the viral load is already much higher than than last summer. And it's just going straight up. It almost looks like, you know, when we have these winter surges, the last two winters, we have a steep incline peak and a steep decline peak. Whereas like last summer was a little bit of an uphill and a a little bit of a downhill, uh, but a much more dramatic increase we're seeing right now. And wastewater data, uh, as you mentioned, is considered an early indicator of the COVID infection rate. How does the information help hospitals and public health officials prepare? Well, <clears throat> well, you heard from Dr. Sang right there that, you know, there's no doubt that cases are, are, are going to be rising here. We know that the lead time can vary based on the, the different variants that are out there, like two to four weeks is when we could start seeing uh, this reflected in some of the cases. Um, but we know that wastewater, you know, we're hearing uh, the hospital people say that this is a just a better way to track COVID. I mean, you know, it's, it's non-discriminatory in the fact that like, you know, you don't have to go and seek out a test. I mean, everybody goes to the bathroom, it all goes in the pipes and goes to the plants. Um, and where Whereas we're getting a lot of at-home testing right now. So even the numbers that we're seeing, cases reported in the daily like 2000s, uh, there's a lot more people that are testing at home that just never make it into those official case counts. That's why wastewater is you know, being hailed here as a tool to look into. And would that mean more hospitalizations? That's definitely what hospital leaders are preparing for. I mean, there's kind of this, you know, is BA5, is it more severe? Is it less severe? Um, even if it is less severe, this this new super contagious variant that's that's driving all these cases, uh, 
if more and more people are going to be infected, you know, that means that more high risk people are going to be infected and inevitably people are going to end up in the hospital with so much spread. So they're worrying and they're also juggling a lot of other things right now, you know, in terms of staffing, like hundreds of staff out sick with COVID. So all those issues haven't gone away, still there on the back burner. And the BA5 subvariant of the Omicron strain is now, as you just said, the dominant strain in San Diego County. What are health officials saying about how it's different from other strains? You know, this is definitely the dominant variant in San Diego County right now. Like you mentioned, it is driving all these cases. And we're hearing from hospital leaders that it appears to be a less acute illness with this in terms of, you know, less people are needing to be put on ventilators, uh, less people are going to the ICU. Now, kind of I touched on it earlier, we really don't know if that's because BA5 is is less severe, like a less severe strain, but but it might be more contagious, or if we have a lot of protection built up from things like vaccinations, uh, previous infections, and also we have a lot of these treatments like Paxlovid, monoclonal antibodies. So it's kind of unclear if BA5 is this, you know, really, really bad virus, we know it's still killing people, but uh, it's it's sort of unclear. What can you tell us about how well the vaccines and other drugs are working against the virus? There is an Omicron-specific vaccine that could be coming out uh, very soon, uh, but we're hearing from health officials not necessarily to wait for that because we are hearing that, you know, while BA5 might be able to uh, evade a little bit more immunity compared to previous strains, that there's still protection against hospitalization and death with these vaccines, and that's exactly why they're intended. So they're saying if people are, you know, haven't gotten their third booster or if they're over 50, haven't gotten their their fourth booster, and they're waiting for that Omicron-specific, they say don't wait for that. And we also know too, that some of the treatments like Paxlovid, some of the monoclonal antibody treatments, some of them may not be working as well, but there's a lot of them that are still working very well. So if you get COVID, county officials want you, especially if you're high risk, to go out and seek out those treatments so that you never end up in a hospital. And Los Angeles County health officials have said they may go to universal indoor masking based on uh, the infection rate there. San Diego is currently in the highest risk tier, according to CDC guidelines. So are, are local health officials considering a mask mandate as well? Yeah, you know, we, we, we went into the high risk tier, what, like a week ago or so. And then now, you know, as of late last weekend, over the weekend, we've seen this increase in hospitalizations. We saw San Diego Unified Uh, bring out a mask mandate. We saw the local military bases bring back that indoor mask mandate. LA County, as you mentioned, if they stay in this high risk tier for another week, they're going to bring back universal indoor masking. And just simple, Jade, we haven't heard that from county health officials. They they, they haven't gone that far. Um, You know, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't completely rule it out as something they're considering, but we just haven't heard that there doesn't appear to be an appetite uh, for a mask mandate here in San Diego. But but health officials are still at least recommending Uh, masking, correct? And they say that they're going to be recommending it even stronger that we're here in this high risk tier or this orange tier, however you want to refer to it. Uh, We also know that, you know, part of the CDC guidelines when we're in this high risk tier, which basically means there's a lot of COVID in the community, they recommend that everyone wear their masks indoors because we know they work. You know, the cloth ones may not work as well, but like N95s, we know that they work. And so they want people to wear them. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Jade. Critics call it a stunt. 
Supporters say it's a new important tool to curb gun violence in California. Governor Gavin Newsom ripped a page out of the Texas anti-abortion playbook last week and signed a bill allowing private citizens to sue gun makers for deaths from firearms banned in the state. The new law is fashioned on the Texas law, empowering citizens to sue anyone who aids or abets women obtaining abortions. California's new law is just one of a number of gun reforms recently enacted in the state, flying in the face of the new Supreme Court ruling that expands the scope of the Second Amendment. Joining me is CAP Radio reporter Nicole Nixon. And Nicole, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Can you explain what makes this new California gun legislation so different? Well, there's the fact that it's based on the Texas abortion law, um, which is pretty bold of the state and the governor, I think, um, and getting attention nationally. Uh, There's also the fact that, you know, it opens the door for residents and in some cases state and local prosecutors to sue gun makers and sellers, um, which have been protected for almost 20 years now from liability for their products um, based on a federal law. So he signed this bill on Friday. Uh, Earlier this month, he signed a second bill that requires firearm businesses to abide by this standard of conduct um, and take reasonable measures to try to prevent their weapons from falling into the hands of people who would use them for violence. And if if these companies break that code of conduct, then it would allow citizens and prosecutors to sue them for failing to prevent gun violence. So Newsom says this new law may be the most impactful thing the state has done to prevent gun violence. How does it expand the effort to stop illegal gun sales in the state? Yeah, the Senate bill, um, SB 1327, which is the one he signed last week, it allows private enforcement of the state's ban on assault weapons and ghost guns. So theoretically, if somebody notices a weapon that's being sold and it's supposed to be outlawed in the state, that person could sue the gun dealer for damages up to $10,000 and attorney fees. There is a lot of debate here about the legal sort of issues at play and whether it will be challenged before it, it takes effect next year. What kind of legal challenges could the new law face? Well, legal experts have told me that it could face a number of challenges. You know, uh, the Second Amendment is the big one. Um, There's a clause in the Constitution that deals with interstate commerce, so it could could face a legal challenge uh, there. There's also that federal law that Congress passed in 2005, which shields gun manufacturers from legal liabilities. Um, and these these laws want to hold gun makers, gun sellers um, liable for damages stemming from gun violence. So while Newsom is very confident that this one piece of the law based on the Texas abortion law um, that the Supreme Court did uh, say was OK and returned to the state, there are other legal issues that could be the demise of these laws. And does the governor admit that this is, in effect, a response to the Texas anti-abortion law? Oh, absolutely. He has openly stated that he does not agree with the Supreme Court's decision um, to not rule on this issue, on this one portion of the Texas law that allows people to sue others for aiding and abetting in in an abortion. Um, But he says that, you know, now that the Supreme Court has ruled on it, he's going to turn it around and use it to fight gun violence. So... Uh, another sort of uh, stepping up or another level of the culture wars here between these two states and um, Newsom going after Texas and Florida, two of his favorite targets. 
Now, this is not the only response the governor and the legislature have made in the face of Supreme Court rulings expanding the scope of the Second Amendment. Can you tell us some of the gun laws that have recently been signed into law in California? Right. These two laws are getting a lot of the attention, but Newsom has signed like 10 other gun laws this year. Um, They include a ban on marketing guns to children, a ban on 3D printing of guns or certain parts of firearms, um, increased inspections at gun retailers. There's also this new requirement that school officials immediately report any safety threats on campus to police. um, And that also includes a provision that schools give out storage information about safe firearm storage at homes to parents every year. And then there are a few other laws that sort of expand the ban on gun sales on uh, state and local property, including in San Diego at the uh, Del Mar Fairgrounds. There won't be gun sales and ammo sales won't be allowed there anymore. And when does this new law allowing private citizens to sue the firearms industry go into effect? Yeah, the one that allows people to sue for damages is supposed to take effect in January. The other one, which allows people to sue firearm businesses for failing to prevent gun violence, takes effect next July. But again, we'll see if there are legal challenges that either overturn or delay implementation of these laws. I've been speaking with CAP Radio reporter Nicole Nixon. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. The U.S. monkeypox outbreak is swiftly expanding. The CDC reports more than 3,400 known cases concentrated mainly among men who have sex with men. And in these early days of its spread, people can spend days in search of the right diagnosis. KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier has this story. Two days after Kevin Kwong flew home to California from New York Pride, his hands were so itchy it woke him up. He initially thought it was eczema. Everything started rapidly getting worse. I started to get more spots on my face, more redness, and started leaking fluid. The rash expanded to my elbows and my hands and sort of my ankles. An urgent care doctor didn't think it was monkeypox. Kwong's spots were clustered together and looked different from the monkeypox pictures the doctor had seen. Depending on where I was with my symptoms and who I was speaking to, I was getting different answers. During a virtual appointment, a nurse noticed the rash spreading toward his eyes and told him to go to the emergency room. There, doctors told him he may have monkeypox, but they were unprepared to handle a potential case. And so they were researching while I was in this room and back and forth on the phone with the CDC. I expected myself as a patient to be in the dark, but I didn't realize how little information was also given to providers and how unprepared they were as well. His lesions were swabbed, but the monkeypox test result wouldn't come back for at least a week. He spent 12 hours in the ER before being sent home. At this point, I'm just miserable. I have sores in the back of my throat, in my mouth, all over my body. He says the pain was inescapable. It feels like you stick your hand in 
water that's too hot, sort of that feeling, but you cannot take it out. And so it's constant. After a FaceTime call with a friend, he broke down crying after seeing himself on the screen. Your body is being taken over by this thing that you don't understand and you have nowhere to go. So it's both painful and, and terrifying. After days of appointments and very little sleep, Kwong decided to drive to the University of California San Francisco Hospital. There, he was given oxycodone for the pain and swabbed again for a monkeypox test. The next day, UCSF infectious disease specialist Dr. Peter Chin Hong contacted him. I thought, wow, this is really, really extensive uh, disease. Uh, I've seen other cases of monkeypox before, but they're very limited. I would say Kevin is probably in the top 5% of severity of diseases, and most people probably wouldn't get as severe as Kevin. Because the rash was close to Kevin Kwong's eyes, if left untreated, it could have caused him to go blind. Dr. Chin Hong says the case was so severe, the hospital okayed a prescription of T-pox. That's an antiviral that's been given special clearance by the FDA to treat monkeypox under certain circumstances. I was shocked by how fast Kevin uh, improved. So it was almost like he was on turbo rocket uh, on a way to recovery. Kwong thinks he likely contracted monkeypox from a guy he hooked up with during New York Pride. That man did test positive. Despite Kwong's quick turnaround on the antiviral, he still hasn't tested positive. Dr. Chin Hong says health workers may not have rubbed hard enough to get live cells. It's very difficult as a clinician to like really get a good sample in these kinds of lesions because the patient is often in pain and you don't like to see people suffer. But again, you're going to decrease the yield of the sample. Kwong now takes six antiviral pills a day and no longer needs pain medication. So my face was the first to heal, which I think helped me a lot just mindset wise to be able to recognize who I was in the mirror again. Throughout his ordeal, Kwong has been posting on social media to encourage people to get tested and get the vaccine if they're eligible. That was KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier. The project to transform San Diego's central Embarcadero went before port commissioners and the public last week, and the verdict is... It needs more work. The $3.5 billion redevelopment plan extends along the coast, replacing Seaport Village, and ends south of the USS Midway Museum. As the price tag suggests, it is an enormous project, including multiple high-rise hotels, retail and restaurant space, new marinas for more boats, as well as open space, parks, and a fish processing facility. Many aspects of the plan have met with port approval, but developers were advised to make some significant changes. Joining me is Yehudi Gaff, Gaffin, CEO and partner with One Highway One, the developer for the Seaport San Diego project. And Gaff, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Really a pleasure being with you. Happy to be here. Now, the presentation at the public workshop at the Port Commission last week was accompanied by some impressive new drawings of what the redevelopment would look like. What do you think were some of the highlights of those images? Uh, I think the highlights and what we were trying to do was really get across one of our primary priorities, and that's the public space, the public open space which uh, is is probably the main focus for us. We feel that any great place in the world is really marked by great public realm because that's where most people go. 
and we uh, felt that we really didn't have enough images of what it may look and feel like. So not only did we increase it from our March meeting from 14.8 acres to, to 16 acres, but we also produced the images um, to really show what it would look and feel like and how it would be activated. Now, listeners actually can find those renderings on our website, kpbs.org. There's one seemingly spiral building that's particularly striking. What would that be? We call that our observation tower, and it's been designed by Bjarke Engels Group, which is probably one of the world's preeminent architects. It was in response for the need and the port actually articulated this in the RFP to create some iconic feature for the site. I think we all know that Seattle's really marked by the Space Needle. If you took the needle out of any picture of Seattle, you'd never know what city it was. You know, same as Paris with the Eiffel Tower, which was extremely controversial when it was built. But we worked hard to refine what that uh, observation tower would look like. And a uh, majority of people we've spoken to really like it. I personally have fallen in love with it. I think uh, some people may not, but I think it's going to define our San Diego skyline in the future. Now, as you say, there are lots of drawings of public parks and open space, but one of the criticisms from port commissioners and the public is that the combination of high-rise hotels and additional boat slips ruined the view of the waterfront. What will you be doing about that? We feel San Diego has a, a need for boat slips on the water, but obviously the view issues which we've heard loud and clear are a priority, so we will be reducing them. And the second thing we heard was obviously we need to uh, continue working with the fishermen to refine their needs. We've worked hard over the last six years, hundreds and hundreds of meetings with them. Obviously, COVID has affected their needs. And what came across is that they really want to reevaluate it because of their direct to market approach, which COVID has brought into focus. So an expanded dockside market that's there. So those are the two main issues. But what I'm really pleased about is that most of the other issues seem to have been resolved to their satisfaction. But there seems to be a significant absence of a sense of equity in these plans. It looks like you can enjoy the new waterfront if you have a boat or can spend money on a hotel. But what about everyday San Diegans? How does the redevelopment improve their experience of the waterfront? Yeah, thank you for that question. And it is a key focus of ours from a number of perspectives. I think you heard at the meeting that uh, we're proposing to provide affordable hospitality for people who may not be able to pay the three, $400 a night. We're going to be providing a hostel where you'll be able to rent beds in a gender-separated room in the $60 to $90 range. Uh, we're going to be providing micro hotels where it will also fall into the affordable category of pricing. We also are absolutely committed to this being a place that's comfortable for everyone, whether you come from La Jolla, Barrio Logan, City Heights, or anywhere else in the state. Um, we want to make it comfortable, and we're about to embark on a major listening tour to really go out to the underserved communities with translators so that we can pre present our project but also hear from those communities as to what they want. What is it that they would use? And we feel there's enough public realm um, to really provide all those uses, those activations, whether they're active or passive. So 
it's it's part of our main focus and it's part of our legacy that we want to leave in this project is a memorable place for everyone. There are those who still feel, though, that Seaport Village as it is, is the kind of low-key beach town welcoming attraction that really represents San Diego. And you've gotten criticism that the new development looks like it could be plopped down on any urban waterfront, that it doesn't represent this city. What's your response to that criticism? I think, obviously, Seaport Village has a huge amount of memories and nostalgia. I have it as well. I can remember when my kids were young taking them to Seaport Village. But I will tell you this, our our um, work on the design is to create an authentic San Diego place that will have some aspects of Seaport Village, from the duck ponds to the carousel to small intimate places that you can go and sit and enjoy. Um, so, you know, until we really move into the granular details, it won't become fully apparent. But the commitment is that this is going to be San Diego. And that's part of the reason we're really committed to our commercial fishermen, because I truly believe they're an authentic part of our waterfront and re will remain to be there at Tuna Harbor. So um, we will feel we would have failed if this is like any other project that you call plop down somewhere. Um, we want to create something that's uniquely San Diego and represents something our community will be proud of. And when will you be returning to the Port Commission with the revised plans? We've said we want to return within 60 days. So, you know, again, we're working hard. We've already started. We've, you know, we've done hundreds and hundreds of public meetings. The port meetings were a key inflection point to really try and get to the point of moving something forward. We feel it's been narrowed. Uh, a project like this, you know, being the three and a half billion dollars doesn't happen overnight. We've been working on it for six years. I feel it's really matured and evolved. Um, I, I often use the saying that a project like this is not Amazon Prime. It doesn't come in two days. So we're going to continue to work on it. Um, and we hope that within 60 days, we'll be back with the refinements that have been uh, teased out from the meeting we had. Um, we're already working on that. I've been speaking with Yehudi Gaff, Gaffin, CEO and partner with One Highway One, the developer for the Seaport San Diego project. Gaff, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me and keep up the good work. You've probably seen them as you drive along I-5 past Mission Bay Park. 150 decaying mobile homes on De Anza Point. Last week, the Coastal Commission gave a long-awaited approval to dismantle and remove the abandoned mobile homes. It's part of a plan to transform Northeast Mission Bay Park to include a campground, open space, and most importantly, marshland for bird and marine life habitat. But more planning and more approval is needed to make that proposal a reality. Joining me is Andrew Meyer, Conservation Director for the San Diego Audubon Society. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Maureen. Nice to be here. So the area the city is planning to develop includes De Anza Point, the RV camping areas, Mission Bay Golf Course, and some surrounding areas. What kind of ecological potential do you think that area has? 
That's a great question. It's a good starting point, certainly, because San Diego as a county is the most biologically rich county in the nation. And there is endangered bird habitat in Mission Bay. There is uh, beautiful tidal wetlands that we have in Mission Bay right now. But Mission Bay has drastically changed over the last 100 years. It used to be a 4,000 acre complex of wetlands and, and mudflats and open water. But now the, that habitat, the tidal wetland habitat is 40 acres. There's 1% of that habitat that remains in Mission Bay. We've changed it drastically over the last 100 years or so, with a lot of benefit to humans, certainly. I have lots of uh, birthday parties for my kids at Mission Bay and, and, and swim there and enjoy the bay. But in the northeast corner of the bay, where Rose Creek comes into Mission Bay, the city has a fantastic opportunity to fight climate change through tidal wetland habitat improvement and restoration. Now, the plan put forward by Mayor Todd Gloria preserves 400 acres for marshland. Do you think that's enough? Yeah, the Rewild Mission Bay project is the project of the San Diego Audubon Society and a growing coalition of over 67 organizations that support prioritizing wetland restoration in the northeast corner of the bay. 400 acres would be fantastic. It's a, it's a small slice of what the bay used to be, certainly, but in the northeast corner of the bay, with all of those existing land uses, there is still plenty of acreage to restore tidal wetland habitat for the water quality benefits that tidal wetland habitats provide, for the resilience to sea level rise, which we know is coming. Certainly, a tidal wetland is made to flood and still functions just fine, even at high tide and even as sea levels rise, and for great access improvements. So this is a regional park. This is our public space. Not only does, does everybody in San Diego need better access to the shoreline in the northeast corner of the bay, which we do not have now, but it's also a great opportunity for the city of San Diego to make good on many of its promises and the state's promises about reconnecting Native American communities to the bay. So Native American communities have a long, long history here. They've lived along the banks of Rose Creek, and, and Mission Bay since time immemorial. And re wetland restoration really empowers those kinds, those communities to reconnect to those spaces that they have that long cultural connection with and re-energize and revitalize those connections and share them with the rest of us. So it's really an opportunity for all of us to benefit wetland restoration is with recreation opportunities, plus the wetland uh, water quality improvements and sea level rise resilience that new wetlands would bring for everybody who uses the bay. Now you've raised concerns about private use of this land. For instance, there's a plan for an affordable camping area to be close to the bay. Can you tell us about those concerns? Sure, the, the Coastal Commission just approved camp lands long awaited, as you mentioned, uh, um, a plan for removing the dilapidated mobile homes. Those trailers need to go. Uh, certainly that's a part of the the plan that the city has, which benefits everyone who uses the mobile, the, uh, the, the regional park. Uh, but we see it as the first step towards improving those land uses and restoring that wetland. So this is a short-term plan that, that uh, was just approved by the Coastal Commission, and it's a necessary step. But the long-term plan here has to include substantial and prioritized wetland restoration and the camping and the access and the paddle boarding and the kayaking that would go along with revitalized and reconnected and accessible wetland restoration. So the camping, uh, we can have just as much, we need to have just as much camping as we currently have 
It just needs to be on the banks of a restored and clean wetland uh, and Mission Bay. The, the wetland restoration that we can fit into the northeast corner of the bay will improve the water quality for the people who are boating and swimming there. And it will improve the habitat and the scenic quality for the people who are camping along the banks. So it's not a matter of whether camping should be there or not. It definitely should be. It's just the, the placement of the camping needs to be able to move along the banks of the restored wetland so that the wetland is contiguous and functioning as a water quality filtration device for us as well. How long do you think it's going to take to actually realize your vision for the redevelopment of this area? The city could begin permitting and final planning for wetland restoration in the northeast corner of Mission Bay in a matter of years, three, four years. We could start thinking about actual physical wetland restoration and all of the benefits that come from it uh, in less than five years. I've been speaking with Andrew Meyer, Conservation Director for the San Diego Audubon Society. Andrew, thank you. Thank you very much, Maureen. Have a great day. The governor of Baja, California, vetoed a ban on conversion therapy, the debunked pseudoscientific practice that aims to change people's sexual orientation. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis says the region's gay rights activists are now fighting back. The memories remain raw for 27-year-old Benjamin Sanchez. As the teenage son of a pastor in an ultra-Christian community of Tijuana, his sexual identity was considered a sin. Church leaders told him that conversion therapy would offer him a cure, but he ended up with trauma. I had to look at a mirror and say, I am not this. I do not like men. Being feminine is bad. Being feminine goes against God's plan for me. For years, the so-called therapy left Sanchez confused and prone to panic attacks. So this spring, when he heard that Baja California State Congress was going to ban conversion therapy, Sanchez decided to speak out. I think it's my responsibility, as someone who lived through this and survived, that no one else has to go through this. The State Congress initially passed a ban in April. But the governor, Marina del Pilar Avila, vetoed the ban. Instead, she chose to regulate the industry. The governor's regulations give parents the right to choose to send their kids to conversion therapy, as long as the kids are not forced to go. Activists have quickly pointed out that several international medical groups, including the American Psychological Association, have debunked conversion therapy as a dangerous pseudoscience. That was Cesar Espinosa, the director of COCUT, a Tijuana-based LGBT rights nonprofit. He says studies have shown that conversion therapy does more harm than good. California banned the practice for minors in 2012, partly because experts say that people subjected to conversion therapy end up with higher risks of suicidal behavior. Ilan Meyer of the UCLA Williams Institute says that people who are exposed to conversion therapy are more likely to suffer from several medical conditions. That could lead to suicide attempts, depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, and a range of mental health problems. Shortly after the governor announced her regulations, Kokut filed a lawsuit seeking to keep the original ban, the one passed by Baja California Congress. 
Sanchez and other advocates say that regulations create a massive loophole because most of the people in conversion therapy are minors who have been manipulated by their parents and churches into going to conversion therapy. I would have told them, yes, I want to be here because this is right. I don't want this in my life and I don't want to be gay. Sanchez says that as a teenager, if anyone had asked him if he chose to go to conversion therapy, he would have said it was his idea. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Maracal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, Maracal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Comic-Con ended on Sunday. It was the first full-scale in-person show since 2019. And although the show is over, some attendees will be busy this week following up on contacts they made doing portfolio reviews at the convention. Comic-Con offers artists the opportunity to meet with a variety of professionals who will review their work and offer suggestions on how to improve. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with Tom Dougherty, editor-in-chief, publisher, and owner of Committed Comics, about what a portfolio review entails for both the artist and the person doing the review. So tell me a little bit about Committed Comics. So me and my business partner, Alex, we've been best friends for years, and back in 99, we were like, hey, the comic book industry is kind of like garbage. And we were just sitting there complaining about it, as most fans do when you know you go through cycles of industry. And uh, my roommate at the time, John, was like, look, uh, you guys can either sit there and complain or you could do something about it. So I was like, well, we know enough people. We know enough artists and writers. And I was always, I've always been a comic book fan. And so I was like, yeah, let's start our own company. And so that's pretty much how it started. And with the mindset and the goal to give people the opportunity to get into the industry, because it really is a very much kind of a closed door industry unless you know somebody or you know you happen to roll that lucky dice. And you're here at Comic-Con, so what do you feel Comic-Con offers both to a comics publisher and to the artists who come here? So Comic-Con as a, as a whole is, is one of the only comic conventions around the country that offers pure experiences. You know, other shows around the country, he who has the most money will win. And that's not the case here. I mean, everything is just an experience. You just get to come in, you get to do everything. For fans, you know, who want to get into the comic book industry, it affords them things like this, portfolio reviews, to where, you know, companies are looking for different elements of creativity. They also can go and talk to people on the sales floor and get advice or get tips and tricks on how to do it. And for me as a publisher, it kind of opens up the ability to see more than what can be put in front of me digitally. We get inundated so much with just images and sound and noise now. It's, it's, it's really nice to actually be able to connect with somebody face to face and actually, you know, look at their stuff you know, physically, you know, and point out different things about, you know, the artwork that might work or the storytelling capacity or just whatever different facets they actually have in their portfolio. And, you know, for me, for Committed Comics, we've hired a tremendous amount of people from doing portfolio reviews here at Comic-Con. And some of them have gone on to be quite successful in the comic book industry, which I have no doubt they would have made it there regardless because they're exceptionally talented people. 
but it is nice that it's been like, oh yeah, yeah, my finger's been on that, you know? <laughs> and so what are these sessions like? When somebody comes in and opens up their portfolio for you, what are you looking for? What are you looking to kind of give them? I mean, there's a variety of different things. That's the one great thing about the creative industry as a whole is there is no standard. There is no like, hey, it's A, which is followed by B, which is followed by C, which is also one of the reasons why I love doing portfolio views. I never know what's gonna happen when the person sits down and they say, here it is, and they open it up and it's either, you know, a wonderful Trevor trove of things or I'm looking at it going, I'm very confused, you know, but that allows me to communicate with the people. And then the other thing I kind of want to gear it towards and what I'm looking for is I'm looking for somebody who is creatively driven. I was telling someone the other day down on the sales floor, if you are only going to create because someone's asking you to create, then I really don't want to work with you. Because for me, this is totally a passion project. This is this is not my full-time job doing this. I mean, I have two other full-time jobs, but I still will, you know, do the comic book company, committed comics, you know, 24 hours a day if I need to. So I need to make sure that the people who I'm working with have the same kind of level of commitment, no pun intended, you know, <laughs> and uh, and drive. And that's there's so many different facets of that, but that's really it as, as a whole. You know, people can show that in different ways. We take on creator-owned projects. We take on people who only have one facet of the storytelling, you know, whether they be a writer or whether they be an artist or whether they be a colorist or there's different stages to the creativity. So every single thing is slightly different, but essentially every single person who I want to work with, even if I wasn't in the picture, they'd be like, look, I have a stack of artwork that I've been working on, you know, because I can't stop. That's the, the, the people who I want to talk to and want to see. And do you see artists coming back repeatedly for portfolio reviews? And what's kind of like that process or evolution like? I had a bunch of people over time come back and, you know, they'll show me their portfolios and they say, hey, you know, I saw you last year and took into account and I changed, you know, this panel, this perspective, or I learned more about, you know, human anatomy. And it's great. It's, I, I love it because one, I'm doing this to try to help people. That's, that's, you know, again, yeah, I would love to find more talent. I would love to find more creators and, you know, be able to produce a bunch of more projects, but I just want people to enjoy comic books. And so <clears throat> if that allows people to say like, hey, I learned a little bit from you and I applied it and now I'm better, that's like gangbusters for me. And are the artists usually open to the criticism or are some of them defensive or? The good ones are. The, the people who actually want to excel and want to work in this industry, they absolutely are. They're, they're like, look, if they're smart, they understand they don't know everything. If you go downstairs and talk to some of the largest comic book artists downstairs, they'll tell you right away, I don't know everything. I'm still learning too. And anytime an artist has stopped learning, then they've plateaued and they're not going to excel anymore. And again, like I said, there's no template for creativity. Creativity, you're constantly learning, you're constantly building, you're constantly getting better. So the good ones are, they're very open to criticism. At the same time though, I don't, when I look at a portfolio, I'm not gonna sit there and be like, that's terrible and that's wrong and that doesn't do them any good either if, if I'm just mean to them, you know? And I've heard horror stories of other editors that are just like, nope, nope, you should go home and never come back and, you know, and I'm like, no, like what good does that do anybody? All you do is you basically upset somebody and you crush their dreams. And that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to try to help them. Granted, there are times where I'll tell somebody, look, I don't know if comics are right for you. You know, you might be better off going to storyboarding. You might be better off doing concept artwork. Again, creativity, there's so many different realms that someone doesn't fit into one box, you know, hey, try another box. If they don't work well for sequential storytelling, which is comic books, that's what I tell them. I say, you know, like, hey, this is really good. You should really go into film because they need matte painters or they need 
people who understand storyboarding or they need concept art or packaging design. And so again, that's just another outlet for a creator to go towards if comic books maybe isn't working for them or, or maybe they're not suited for it. And how did you initially get into comics? I uh, pretty much my first words, much to the chagrin of my parents, was Batman. And I've just been a lifelong comic book fan. And I grew up in New York and they had much smaller conventions out there that I would go to all the time. And I just kept buying and buying and collecting and talking to people and getting to know more and more people to the point where a really good friend of mine who we used to shop at the same comic book store, he ended up working at Marvel. Fast forward, you know, 10 years, he's now a full-time staff member and I would go and hang out with him in the office. So I got different viewpoints and different experience in the comic books. And that's kind of like, I just experienced that and I was like, this is cool. I want to keep doing this. My roommate said, look, stop complaining <laughs> and do something about it. So I was like, all right, well, you know, me and my uh, friend Alex, we're crazy. So, you know, <laughs> we'll start a company. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking about Committed Comics. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> that was Beth Accomando speaking with Tom Dougherty of Committed Comics. You can check out Beth's Comic-Con coverage on her blog at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. And congratulations to our own Beth Accomando. This year, she received a Comic-Con International Inkpot Award given to individuals for their contributions to the worlds of comics, science fiction, fantasy film, television, animation, and fandom services. Congratulations, Beth. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.